Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Today, we'll discuss a small cell lung cancer case. And for that, I am fortunate enough to be joined by two dedicated thoracic medical oncologists, both with extensive experience in small cell management, Dr. Lauren Byers and Dr. Santiago Ponsex. Dr. Byers is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She is an accomplished and highly esteemed physician scientist with expertise in lung cancer. Her laboratory is central to a lot of the pivotal biomarker work that's being done in small cell lung cancer. Not only is she a leader in the field, but she's mentored several of the rising leaders in the field. Lauren, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me. It's great to be here. Dr. Ponsex is a medical oncologist who serves as the head of the lung cancer unit of the 12 to October University in Madrid, Spain, but recently joined the illustrious staff at Gustave Roussy in Paris, France. He is an extremely accomplished clinical investigator who played an important role in so many of the pivotal small cell lung cancer trials over the past few years. Santi, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Stephen, for inviting me to be here. Today for this virtual tumor board, we're going to discuss a case of extensive stage small cell lung cancer. This case is fairly straightforward. A 68-year-old female presented to our emergency room with progressive dyspnea. She noted more shortness of breath over the past month, but she attributed this to her COPD. However, recently her breathing became increasingly short. In the emergency room, she was mildly hypoxic and tachypnic, had a CT scan that showed a large right infrahylar mass, bulky mediastinal adenopathy, and multiple bone metastases. There was also marked narrowing of the SVC. Her symptoms got better with two liters of supplemental oxygen. Labs did show mild hyponatremia with a sodium of 129. We sent her for bronchoscopy and a biopsy there revealed small cell lung cancer. Now, Santi, when we hear this type of presentation, does this seem fairly typical for your practice? And what are your next steps here? Well, actually, this is quite typical example of small cell lung cancer. Normally, I would say that I love to have also the history of the tobacco habit of the patient. For me, this is quite important to know which type of tobacco and the amount of tobacco that the patient has as a previous history. Normally, this is quite useful because sometimes in our practice, we don't have right after CT scan. Probably we'll have first chest X-ray. And if you have a patient with a mild hyponatremia and enlargement of the mediastinum and being a heavy smoker, probably without even a bronchoscopy and without even having a pathology saying that this is small cell lung cancer, your first thing that you have to think about it is a small cell lung cancer. This is very typical presentation, sudden of breath, and maybe also due to the hyponatremia, some weakness and dizziness that can happen actually very, very often with this presentation. Something that is very typical, and this is the perfect situation to explain it, is that patient that is coming to the emergency room. In the emergency room, sometimes it's difficult to assess the performance status of the patient. Sometimes it's difficult with a small cell lung cancer because it's a very fast disease sometimes, and you have to evaluate the performance status right after in the emergency room, but also thinking what was the previous life uh, for this patient. Because maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the patient was with perfect normal life, and now the patient is having symptoms and maybe that growing very fast due to the small cell lung cancer. For sure that the, the paraneoplastic syndromes is pretty important. Maybe hyponatremia is the most frequent, but we have to open our mind to see 
neurological paraneoplastic syndromes, and many other things that uh, a patient can have and present as part of the same disease, as part of the small cell lung cancer disease. And for sure, probably something that I'm missing also, I don't know you, but uh, in a patient having a very large uh, bulky mediastinal disease and having a bronchoscopy with a small cell lung cancer is maybe CT scan, at least a CT scan. No? Many of those patients have also brain meds uh, at the time of the presentation of the disease. So for me, it's quite typical, no? this presentation, and also is one of the typical questions in our national exam in, in Spain to access to uh, specialities and so on. This is super typical. Yes, I think the points you bring up very common in the U.S. as well. And I agree that perineoplastic syndrome is probably under-recognized, under-diagnosed. The point about the assessment of performance status is really important, really thinking not just what is the performance status today, but what was it a few weeks ago. I think that is something that's maybe a little more unique to small cell than others. Now, one thing you didn't mention, and I'll go to Lauren, when we think of non-small cell lung cancer, we're basing all of our initial decisions on genomic testing, on pdl one expression. Santi didn't bring that up. Any role for that in small cell? So in small cell you know, patients, we really don't have a validated biomarker that we are using today in our clinical practice in order to guide what treatment we'll use for each you know, individual patient. But I can say that there has been really encouraging progress that we've seen in identifying new candidate biomarkers that we think will really change this in the next few years for our small cell patients. And so some of these, you know, from our group and others, we've really found now that small cell lung cancer is not just a single disease, but we can identify molecularly distinct groups. So similar to how we know that, you know, in non-small cell lung cancer, there's EGFR cancers that respond differently into different agents than ELK or other, you know, kind of pdl one high patients. And so, you know, I think we really have a path forward in terms of how we can use these molecularly distinct small cell groups going forward in the future to personalize treatment for these patients. And, you know, I think this is something that is certainly under active investigation right now in clinical trials. And so I, I would say, Today in the clinic, we don't have biomarker testing that we're using in this way, but I think in the next few years, we'll see the starting to become available. Now, let's start with our general standards of care and then maybe adapt for this particular case. Lauren, what's your preferred first-line treatment for a small cell patient with a good performance status as an outpatient? So for these patients, we really have two good options, you know, combining standard platinum-based atopicide chemotherapy together with immune checkpoint blockade. And this is, of course, based on the phase three trials, the Empower 133 study and the Caspian study demonstrated that there was improvement in survival with patients who had the addition of either atizolizumab or, or gervalimab uh, to the, the platinum atopicide chemotherapy. I would say in my practice, I frequently, for patients that are receiving standard of care, we'll use a combination of carboplatin toposide together with atizolizumab. Santi, any difference in your practice? Well, actually, probably here in Europe, we are more close to use cisplatin instead of carboplatin. And if we allow to do that, we prefer to use cisplatin, even in the metastatic setting. We know for sure that in the limited stage of small cell lung cancer, for me, it's clear that I prefer cisplatin, but also in extensive stage is my preference. You can think that about this patient is harboring hyponatremia, even though we prefer to correct the hyponatremia and trying to treat the patient with cisplatin, even with the problem of the hyperhydration and so on. But if for sure I agree that uh, the combo with platinum-based chemotherapy, I know that probably in the other part of the Atlantic, uh, we are, you are more close to carboplatin than for cisplatin. 
<laughs> but it's probably a matter of use, but for sure with the combo of immune therapy plus the chemotherapy. I will say I'm more of a carboplatin guy myself. I certainly think cisplatin is, is very reasonable. And I just feel that the toxicity does favor carbo in my own practice. Lauren, choice of platinum for you? I tend to use carboplatin again because of the toxicity profile, you know, for the majority of patients. And also thinking that, you know, for a patient with extensive stage disease, you know, in the majority of these patients, thinking forward to second line and other lines of treatment, sort of what, you know, how they'll tolerate next line therapy. I, I tend to favor carboplatin for that reason as well. Sometimes if you have a patient with a lot of bone disease and so on, this is one of the patients that probably we use cisplatin, but it's true that the toxicity profile of cisplatin is more tough than carboplatin. But looking to the labs and to especially to platelets and so on, this is something that is worries us a little. And that is one of another reason to prefer cisplatin than carboplatin. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the only time I've used cisplatin for extensive stage in recent memory was someone who did have mayo involvement in a lot of cytopenias, and, and certainly the talks would favor cis there. Do you have access to the atezolizumab and durvalumab combinations in Paris or when you were in Madrid? Is access to those immunotherapy agents readily available? Yes. Actually, we have access in France to Atiso. Spain is approved by EMA, but unfortunately, is not reimbursed yet by the Spanish health authorities. You know that we are living in a hard situation right now, and this is a stop. And patients probably is hard to get a TISO right now in Spain. In France, it is the normal situation to receive a combo with platinum plus atezolizumab. Probably durbalumab is a little behind in the field of use uh, here in Europe. Now, atezolizumab available to you in Paris, but the case we talked about here is a little different. So let's return to this one. Here, our patient is in the hospital with dyspnea, her performance status right now is a little worse than patients we enrolled on those registrational trials. Mm -hmm. How would you approach systemic therapy for this particular patient, Santi? Well, when you are facing a small cell lung cancer, probably you are facing an old patient with a lot of comorbidities, maybe also with a low PS only due to the disease. And you are dealing probably with a PS2, PS3 patient because a very huge amount of tumor. Um, for those patients, actually, those patients are not represented in any trial. Those are the patients that we are not enrolling in any trial. You know better than me, Stephen. But for those patients, we try to go for maybe a weekly schema with carboplatin plus taxol. And for instance, sometimes if the patient is harboring liver impairment or something like that, that we are not allowed to do combo of chemotherapy, we bet for carboplatin alone, maybe, and then we are not losing the opportunity of adding immune therapy as soon as possible. No, I mean, like probably for those patients that the PS is not good because of the disease and for small cell lung cancer, this patient is going to respond very quick, probably. And after a few doses of weekly chemotherapy, for instance, the patient is allowed to change the schema and to change it to every three weeks and then to add immune therapy at that moment. I truly believe that we have to fight those kind of patients to rescue the patient because if I said previously, it's very important if the patient was doing good a few weeks ago and now the patient is with a bad performance status because those patients are those that we can rescue with some other scheme of chemotherapy and then give the advantage of giving immune therapy to have a better outcome. So rescue those patients with chemotherapy. We have high response rates. Once they're feeling better, discharged, adding immunotherapy at that point, not waiting until progression. Is that what I'm hearing, Santi? Yeah. 
Excellent. I think that's a very appropriate approach. Lauren, on the US side, any limitations for inpatients or patients slightly outside of the standard inclusion criteria? I think this varies a lot based on institution and where the patient's being treated. I completely agree that the most important thing is getting chemotherapy on board for the patient. So I think that's what's going to provide the fastest you know, response and, and hopefully improvement in the patient's performance as the, the cancer-related symptoms start to respond to the treatment. I will say, you know, even for our inpatients, you know, at our site, we often will start chemotherapy and immunotherapy together as long as they don't have a medical history you know, such as autoimmune disease or other reasons why we don't feel like they would be, you know, safe to receive immunotherapy. But often we will start, you know, the immune checkpoint blockade together with the chemotherapy in health. Now, one drug I haven't heard that does have a recent FDA approval is trilocyclib. Lauren, any role for this agent in your practice? Trilocyclib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, you know, it's been shown that it may help to protect bone marrow cells from chemotherapy and decrease myelosuppression. And recently, you know, was approved in February of this year for this indication, specifically in patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer receiving chemotherapy. I can say that, you know, I'm not routinely using this drug in my practice, you know, across the board, but a patient such as the one that we're discussing here who, you know, may be at higher risk for infectious complications, you know, this could be a useful, you know, sort of supportive therapy to add together with the chemotherapy. Santa, going back to this case, that initial scan described narrowing of the superior vena cava. If there were SVC syndrome, does that influence your treatment strategy for small cell in any way? Yes, for sure. Not for treating or not the patient. That, as I said, that we have to treat those kind of patients. But for the election of chemotherapy, for sure, in that particular patient and with the SBC, I would choose carboplatin instead of cisplatin due to the hyperhidratation that we need. Um, but thinking also, someone can think in radiotherapy maybe. This is not my first option with a patient with a small cell lung cancer because with a very high response rate, uh, normally I bet again for chemotherapy right after as soon as possible. And normally we keep a radiotherapy and any other local approach for a second step. But chemotherapy in that case with carboplatin uh, would be my choice. I couldn't agree more. I had a recent case where there was really just radiographic description of SVC impingement and and they had called radiation oncology. They were thinking about a stent before they called me. And I just sort of rush in and say, look, chemotherapy is going to work faster than radiation. It's going to be yeah, a much sure. better option for that patient. Lauren, let's say... You have an SABC with hemoptysis, maybe, that probably you can change your mind, something. But for those patients, the emergency probably is chemotherapy. And this is the message that I think is super good now. Yeah, I agree. Those initial response rates are, are quick. Lauren, let's say we did our staging MRI, and same case, but we identified three subcentimeter brain metastases. There were two right frontal, one left parietal. Does this change your approach in any way? No, it really doesn't. I would say that, you know, again, similar to the question with SVC, the, the chemotherapy is very likely to cause reduction in the brain metastases. Here we have a patient who really is not symptomatic from those. And so I would still prioritize getting the uh, systemic treatment and especially the chemotherapy started. And then when the patient was having staging, you know, frequently after the second cycle is when, you know, I would look again, I would also include MRI imaging to monitor the brain metastases and make sure that they're remaining stable or hopefully having some reduction. And then once the patient gets to the end of the induction chemotherapy, then that's when we would often use whole brain radiation at that point to address these, um, these brain metastases. Santa, your approach with asymptomatic brain mets? 
or it's absolutely the same. I think I have a lot of faith in chemotherapy in that disease because I've seen many patients responding with symptomatic and asymptomatic brain meds. And probably we can uh, take the advantage of the local treatment for a second round or maybe to consolidate uh, some metastasis that is not responding, you know, in order to avoid toxicity and to extend the benefit for the patient. So I'm going to fast forward this case a bit. This was a patient we had seen, started carboplatin in the toposide as an inpatient, had a good response, discharged with home oxygen. With cycle two, we added concurrent atezolizumab. Symptoms improved, actually got her off of oxygen, and CAT scans after cycle two and four showed a good response. A little bit of thoracic adenopathy left. The MRI, though, showed a complete response in the brain. So here we are, good PR in the chest, a CR in the brain. We finished our induction. She's now on maintenance, and we switched her to the once-monthly dosing. Santi, is there any role for consolidative thoracic radiation here? And and is that part of your practice? Well, actually, I have to say yes. For me, it's part probably of my routine to consider radiotherapy to consolidate the response into the thorax. If we look to the data, probably the data is not so clear. We have the CREST trial suggesting us that those patients can benefit in overall survival at two years. Those patients without bone or liver met, the patient with a more benefit from radiotherapy to the chest. But I think that it's quite clear from this trial that local progression, you can avoid a lot of problems with local progression and symptoms. No? And for for this is something that we are always pushing no, in our patients not to receive a radiotherapy to the thorax. And Lauren, thoracic radiation in your practice? I agree with Santi. I think that you know this has changed a little bit of how we think about it with chemo immunotherapy now being the standard because it hasn't directly been tested, you know, thoracic radiation in patients you know, who are on those those clinical trials of chemo immunotherapy. But I will say that, you know, in practice. We still, you know, feel like those patients that have predominantly disease in the chest where that's the highest risk of relapse, we often will, you know, use thoracic radiation to consolidate them after they've had a really good treatment response. And that's something that we're also looking at in some of our ongoing clinical trials is the the role of radiation and if it might have some, you know, further enhancement potentially even of benefit from the immunotherapy. Yeah, we have some important clinical trials going on with consolidated radiation and for chemoimmunotherapy with radiation for limited stage that the NRG is conducting, some pharma-sponsored studies. I agree. I think it makes a lot of sense. Hopefully, we'll have that data soon. Let's turn attention to the brain. This patient had a CR in the brain. And Lauren, you mentioned whole brain radiation. Is that your practice? And if it is, what's the timing of that? It's a great question. So I think that this is something where, again, with using immunotherapy, we have more options available. So if you know, in the past, the patient was just receiving typical you know, chemotherapy is their frontline treatment. I would usually do whole brain radiation at the end of their of their chemotherapy frontline treatment. I think now it's something that you know we can discuss with the patients. We have data from patients who were treated with chemo immunotherapy that have been observed with these asymptomatic brain metastases, and so I think that that is one option. But I usually do discuss the option of whole brain radiation with patients. We know that all our patients with small cell lung cancer are at a high risk of relapse in the brain. And so it's something to consider. I usually also like to get radiation oncology involved in the discussion as well so that they can really you know, talk to the patient about sort of the, the potential benefits versus you know potential side effects and help them with sort of weighing whether or not to, to do that kind of early in their treatment course after completing the induction chemotherapy or 
whether or not, you know, that could be something for down the road, depending on their preferences and those discussions. Yeah, really is a data-free zone. And I think it's going to be hard to do those kinds of studies, but let's make this a little simpler. Santi, let's say this patient did not have any brain metastases. We finished our induction chemoimmunotherapy. This is historically where we would talk about PCI. Is PCI still part of your practice for extensive stage small cell? Well, actually it's not. I'm not advising my patients in a routine manner to receive PCI, but I can think the some situations that can be uh, useful. I mean, as Lauren said, that if at the time that we don't have any other uh, treatment for small cell lung cancer, that the first line and radiotherapy, radiotherapy is better than nothing. I mean, if believing or treating your patient in a place that uh, the follow-up is not going to do by MRI and uh, you don't know which is going to be the access for this patient to the system, probably I would say go and do the PCI for this patient. But if we look to the data and we can perform MRI as follow-up, and we know for sure that this patient is not harboring any brain meds, that is probably the main pitfall of the ERTC trial, that we don't have any baseline assessment of the brain, I would say wait. Wait because we are in a different situation right now where we can have patients with small cell lung cancer living for a very long time and having toxicity, real toxicity from radiotherapy of the PCI. And I would say that we have to be very conservative in this approach. Lauren, PCI in your practice, any role? I don't use PCI routinely in patients with expensive stage disease based on you know the same things that Santi was saying. I think that MRI surveillance is very appropriate. And so I think that that's usually yeah, how, I, uh, how I try to monitor patients for for signs of developing CNS disease, you know, later on over the course of their treatment. Yeah, I'm with both of you. Couldn't agree more. But what does the surveillance strategy look like here, Lauren? What's your own practice off protocol? How often are you doing scans and what kind of scans? I typically get an MRI of the brain as the way that I do the surveillance. And I usually will do it every three months. Sometimes, you know, it depends a little bit about, the, you know, the patient and kind of where they're traveling from and their access. Sometimes I'll space it out a little bit if their you know, disease in the rest of the body is still under good control, but typically you know, around every three months. Yeah, I agree. Now, this particular case, patient's still getting a Tezo. She's doing very well, no progression, but we know that the risk of progression continues to be quite high. A lot of variables to think about when we think about second-line treatment. So, Santi, let's go to you. What's your approach to second-line therapy for small cell off-study? Off-study. This is the tough one. <laughs> yeah. I know you always have a lot of studies, something, but let's just say off-study. Many options on a study, but off-study, well, you know probably that they have some experience with uh, lulbinectidine. We have beautiful, not amazing response rate. Around a third of the patient is having a good response. We know that we don't know the data, but the phase three trial against topotecan or against CAF is not positive trial. Um, but for me, probably for the toxicity profile that lurbinectidine is quite well tolerated, I would say that for me right now, lurbinectidine is a good approach. If we are talking to don't replay the platinum combo, if we are talking about second pure second line as a different schema. And when would you revisit platinum? Sort of what's your cutoff there? This is another easy question. <laughs> Actually, I would say that three months, no, three months for me probably is, is the limit to uh, give the change again to uh, platinum, no, probably this is something off a study, no, if I can mix 
lurbinectidine, for instance, with arinotecan, with some good response also, maybe, maybe an approach. But today, off a study, I would say that after three months, uh, I would give the chance again to platinum. Yeah, the, the data for that combo you had presented, the lurbinectidine, very, very high response rates there. Lauren, same question. Your standard second-line approach, again, off-study. Yeah, so I think that, you know, for me, it depends a little bit on different, slightly different time points. For sure, if the patient had responded to platinum for six months or longer, you know, after their last dose of platinum before they had a relapse, then I would go back and retreat, you know, probably somewhere between, you know, four to six months. You know, I'm still thinking along those lines. I think as it gets closer to patients who've only responded for three months or a little bit over that, then I tend to like to go to a different agent that, you know, that the patient hasn't received before. And so that often, you know, these days will be lurbinectidin. So I think that is one good option. It really, I think a lot with second line options, I think a lot about, you know, what are the, what are the patient's potential risks in terms of what side effects or toxicities they may, you know, have a harder time tolerating, you know, which drugs, you know, they may do better with. And so that plays a big role. For many patients who have more of a borderline performance status, I actually will often use oral temozolomide because I think that's something that patients that may not be you know, able to tolerate some of the other single agent chemotherapies or, or you know, may even have a hard time with lurbinectidin often can do well with and have seen some patients really get good benefit from that. Let me throw a little bit a more complicated one at the both of you. I know that at both your institutions, there are going to be many clinical trials to make sure of that. But Let's say in this case, we have someone that's progressed and it's been a year since platinum. So we're, we're still calling them platinum sensitive and they're still receiving atezolizumab. You reinduce with carbotoposide or cisotoposide. Do you continue the immunotherapy there, Lauren? I know there's not data here, but is that a reasonable thing to do? I do. That's my preference. And I feel like, especially for those patients that really have gotten a, a long-term benefit you know, from that original regimen of the chemotherapy and the immunotherapy and have been on maintenance, like you said, for about a year, I really think that yeah, I, I tend to give the chemotherapy again, but continue the immunotherapy as well. Santi, any thoughts on that approach? Yes, I agree. In fact, I have patients with the challenge of chemotherapy for those that the immune therapy is giving a good response for a long time. I have patients in that situation actually with response again to chemotherapy and keeping again immune therapy. I think the fact that it doesn't really add a whole lot of toxicity is, is factoring into the, the equation here. All right, last question. Off study, would your approach be any different if this patient was a never smoker? Lauren? I really still let the histology and you know, sort of the pathology of the cancer direct what treatment I choose. So I will say that you know, as long as it's a small cell lung cancer, I'll use a similar approach. Although I do think you know, for patients that have other high-grade neuroendocrine cancers that sort of fall just outside of the spectrum of small cell, you know, sometimes I will try to get molecular studies on those patients occasionally have seen you know, driver mutations or things where it opened additional options for the patient. And then I think related to this, you know, we've seen some really interesting data recently from Anish Thomas and others at the NCI that some of these patients that are never smokers, potentially there could be a subset of patients that have germline alterations, maybe in some of the DNA repair proteins that could play a role in the development of small cell lung cancer. And I, I think in the future, you know, this warrants further investigation because that might open up additional avenues for certain types of targeted therapy those patients could potentially benefit from. Couldn't agree more. Santi, any difference in your approach in a never smoker? No, actually, we have quite big program of liquid biopsy here at Gustavo C. Um, but 
especially for those patients with small cell lung cancer, first uh, checking the pathology. But uh, we have some patients that we treat uh, in clinical trials, uh, harboring Lorenzet DNA repair genes alteration. So maybe this is uh, something that in the near future is uh, going to give us some new data from those trials. No? So actually, I would check a molecular profile no, for those patients. Yeah, same here. So this has been really helpful. We are at time. Um, but you guys are such professionals. Wrapping up, I really want to thank our listeners. Tune in to find more of our Tumor Board series wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a challenging case you'd like us to consider, send us an email at podcasts at IASLC.org. I really want to thank Dr. Santiago Pontex, Dr. Lauren Byers for their expertise, their thoughtful answers, all the research they're doing behind the scenes. Looking forward to seeing you both in person at a meeting soon. Thank, thank you. you so much. It's great talking to both of you. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune in on the first and third Mondays of every month. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.